Hello, this is Lafayette Faust, creator of the Nevermore Hollows podcast. Thank you for making the show a success. Please take a moment to subscribe, give five stars, comment, and share the show with your friends. It's the best way to help us grow and to be able to continue to provide quality horror content. Also, please support our new art director, Chris Madman Goins, at Black Sheep Studios TN on Instagram. He has some amazing Nevermore Hollows art for sale, signed by the both of us, as well as many other original pieces I think you're going to love. Now, for you horror hounds who like to have a good laugh, I invite you to check out my other podcast. It's called The Three Uncool Cats. In it, my two friends and I sit in a basement and discuss music, movies, and whatever else comes into our warped minds. I would really appreciate it if you would give it a listen. Now, with that out of the way, I invite you to sit back, turn on a light, and prepare yourself. Alistair Crowley declared that he was the evilest man in the world. He called himself the Beast. He was a practitioner of blood magic, committed atrocious acts, and conjured demons. He wrote a book in which he declared that there was only one law, and that was to do what thou wilt. That, of course, is only a retelling of the original lie told in a garden a long time ago, which is that we can all be gods, if only we rebel against the ultimate authority. Professor Niles Grieve likens himself to a modern-day Crowley. He has plans for the people of Nevermore Hollows. Dark, twisted, ghoulish plans. With that, I invite you to sit back, turn on a light, and prepare yourself. A razor-sharp knife is a tool created for one purpose, that is to sever. But in the hand of someone with evil intent, it becomes an instrument of murder. In the hands of Professor Niles Grieve, it was used both for murder and for rebellious transfiguration. When he was 18, he had used a knife to sacrifice a man to a demon in exchange for wealth. The result was that Grieve won the biggest lottery payout in Georgia's history. And more recently, after being told that he had been made in the image of God, he had used a knife to transfigure himself by carving his face into something defiant. The vertical scars were thick and ragged and covered his whole head, which was shaved bald. He carved jagged circles around his eyes. He cut off his nose and lengthened his smile by slicing his cheeks. And he filed all his teeth to sharp triangles. His face and head now resembled a flesh-covered jack-o'-lantern, 
It was macabre and disturbing and defied God, and Grieve was pleased. Grieve used his wealth to travel the world, learning all he could about the occult. Then he became a professor of mythology and occultism at a prestigious university. After deciding to create his new image, he resigned his post and moved into Trailer 33 in the Pink Flamingos trailer park. The community sat five miles outside Nevermore Hollows and was inhabited by the lost and the forlorn, the freaks and the impoverished, and those who hid from society because of their dark desires. It was a perfect place to be left alone so that he could be about his wickedness, at least until he could purchase a more suitable and secluded place. Two days after carving his new image, he sat at his window, his head wrapped in blood-stained bandages, and watched the pathetic inhabitants of this disgusting community wander about. An old woman wrapped in her ratty housecoat shuffled to her mailbox. She tripped over the yapping chihuahua that pranced around her feet. She fell hard, hitting her head, and two boys came to her rescue, riding up on their rusty bikes as if they were knights astride massive steeds. He watched them care for the woman as they waited for an ambulance, showing her respect though she was old and ugly and poor. The boy's actions in helping this woman went against Grieve's personal beliefs that old people should be euthanized so not to be a drain on resources, and he was deeply offended. He'd heard the boys give the paramedics their names. The one with the dusky complexion and Cajun patois said his name was Rory Boudreau. The freckled one that looked like America and apple pie identified himself as Stevie Muse. That was six weeks ago. And now that the bandages were off and the sutures had been removed, his anger had evolved into an all-consuming hate. And since it was Halloween, a sacred day for occultists, he decided that he would kill the boys. He waited until the sun interned itself beyond the horizon. Then he dressed himself in his best tux, tailored, of course, with a black shirt and black satin bow tie. The only color he allowed was a purple calla lily boutonniere. He stood in front of his mirror and admired his new look. He was tall and lean and strong. His newly sliced smile was wide, and the razor-sharp tips of his teeth gleamed. His eyes looked sunken due to the deep scarring. I am perfect, he said aloud. The trailer had two small bedrooms, the spare he used as a study. He stepped inside and turned on the light. A knife sat at a shrine on a small table. It had a short handle and a six-inch blade that had been reverently maintained to keep its gleaming glory. It was the knife that Jack the Ripper used when he had slaughtered the women of Whitechapel. He had made it his mission to seek out and procure infamous items that had been used by serial killers, and the Ripper's knife was his most prized possession. And tonight, he would use it to carve those two boys in such a way that their mothers would not recognize them. 
In most towns across America, kids flooded neighborhoods dressed in costumes, knocking on doors, demanding treats to stave off tricks. But not in the Pink Flamingo's trailer park. Many of the residents were not the types of people you wanted interacting with children. And what few kids lived there were too jaded and mean to enjoy the innocent fun of trick-or-treating. Rory and Stevie were the exceptions. They still had innocent hearts and expectant optimism in spite of their current situations. Both were 12 years old and poorer than most other kids their age who lived in Nevermore Hollows. Both were being raised by their mothers. Stevie's dad walked out when he was a baby, and Rory's dad was killed by a voodoo priestess back in New Orleans. Stevie had been lonely until Rory moved in back in the spring, but they had been as close as brothers ever since. In the eight months that they had been together, they had found themselves in half a dozen paranormal experiences, most of them nearly ending in their deaths. They had survived on their wits and boldness and had been saved a couple of times by Ivan Ivanovich, the park's live-in custodian. The boys sat astride their bikes in Stevie's driveway. Stevie wore a Misfits t-shirt and Rory wore a Ramones tee. They were watching the sun sink below the horizon, waiting on twilight to begin their ride. They had decided that they would police the park and look for anything out of the ordinary. If they found anything, they'd alert Ivan. Do you think it will be quiet this year? Stevie asked. I mean, last year we got chased by Mudman and all those river monsters the Brousseau sisters conjured up. Rory shrugged. Who knows? There is always something happening here in this here trailer park, especially on Halloween. The rays of the dying light painted the park in shadowy twilight. Stevie nodded his agreement. If anything is going to happen tonight, it will be from... Now till dawn, let's ride. The Pink Flamingo's trailer park had been established in the 1950s, and its streets were named with a nod to the space age. Even though the trailers were faded and rust-stained, many of the residents attempted to bring color to their dreary lives by stringing white or colored lights around their lots. This helped the boys to see in the dark, considering that there were very few street lamps. The boys did, however, have flashlights duct-taped to their handlebars. They turned off Apollo Lane and headed into Mercury, and headed deeper into the park. When they reached the end of Mercury, they stopped when they heard someone call out for help. Did you hear that? Stevie asked. Rory nodded, looking around, trying to get a fix. Yeah, somebody done be in trouble. They heard it again. Rory got a fix and said, Follow me. They took off down Gemini, riding through splashes of colored lights, looking for the person who was crying for help. They saw a man lying face down in the small patch of grass in front of Trailer 33. He appeared to be bald and wearing a tuxedo. They pulled up to the lot and jumped off their bikes. They had learned the hard way not to rush into any situation, especially not in this creepy trailer park. So they split up. Stevie approached the man, who was now moaning, from the right. Rory approached from the left. "'This be the guy we tried to help a few weeks back,' Rory said. "'Professor Grieve, the one that was so mean.' 
The string of multicolored lights from the neighboring trailer cast a carnival glow onto Grieve, making it difficult to discern any real details about him. When they got close, Grieve jumped up and grabbed Rory. Now that he was standing, they were able to see his ruined face. Rory gave a yell and tried to break free, but Grieve was surprisingly strong. Rory got an arm free and began punching. His blows landed on Grieve's temple, cheek, neck, but the man was unfazed. Stevie ran at Grieve and hit him low and hard in the knees, knocking him to the ground. Rory was temporarily free, but Grieve rolled up into a crouch and snatched his t-shirt and pulled him close. Stevie pushed himself up, ready to strike again. Grieve grabbed a handful of Rory's hair and yanked his head to the side, exposing Rory's neck. He bared his razor-sharp teeth and said, I'll rip out his throat. Stevie believed him. He did not attack, but he stood his ground. Let him go. Grieve shook his head. Not a chance. You little bastards are going to die tonight. Stevie's heart pounded. Rory was keeping his fear in check, but Stevie could see his pulse throbbing in his neck. We, we know the sheriff, Stevie said. If you hurt him, you're going to get caught. Not if you're both dead, Greaves said. He slammed Rory to the ground, cat quick, and put his knee on his chest. He pulled a handkerchief from his pants pocket and smashed it down onto Rory's face. Stevie saw Rory's eyes widen, and then he went completely limp. Chloroform, or something like it, he thought. He turned to run, but Grieve was taller and faster. Before he even got back to his bike, Grieve ran up and shoved him to the ground. He tried to crawl away, but felt the handkerchief shoved over his mouth and nose, and he fell into a deep sleep. He was disoriented and groggy when he awoke. He tried to raise his hands to wipe the blurriness from his eyes, but his hands wouldn't move. As his mind cleared, he realized he was lying on his back. His hands and feet were bound. He was able to turn his head. He saw that he was inside a stone structure. No windows. The only light came from a dozen or so candles placed around the room. He realized that he was in a mausoleum. There were two sarcophagi with flat lids placed beside each other. Small statuettes of crosses carved from stone were affixed to each corner. His hands and feet were tied to the crosses. Rory was tied the same way on the other sarcophagus. He was breathing, but not yet awake. We're alone. Professor Grieve, where is he? We have to get out of here. Rory, he whispered. You awake? Rory stirred, but his eyes remained closed. Rory, wake up. We need to get our heads clear and find a way out of this. Rory groaned and began to shake his head. His eyes fluttered open. For a moment, he just lay there. Then he jerked fully awake and tried to sit up, but was stopped by the restraints. He looked over at Stevie. Where where we be? In a mausoleum. Not sure where, but Professor Grieve must have brought us here. He done said that he was going to murder us, Rory said. Yeah, 
Stevie said. Let me think. One of the reasons they had become such close friends is that they both liked the same things. Comic books, punk rock, horror movies, and adventure. Rory was the impulsive one, the one who was quick to act. Stevie was just as brave, but not impulsive. And he had a way of seeing the big picture. Rory was the one to get them into the adventure, and Stevie was the one that got them out. Rory took deep breaths to clear his head. He tugged at the ropes. They be awfully tight. How about you? Stevie tested his. They were also tight. He craned his neck and saw that the cross at his left foot seemed to have sharper edges than any of the others. He tried moving his foot up. There was the slightest give. As he did, he saw that the sharp edge bit into the rope just enough to cause a few of the strands to fray. Rory was craning his head, trying to watch. Yeah, that seemed to be working. Keep at it. He looked at the crosses he was tied to, looking for sharp edges. The one on his right hand also had a sharp edge. He began wiggling his hand. There was not much movement, but he could also see a few strands pop loose. The boys began working frantically to free themselves. Five minutes passed. Rory seemed to be having more success than Stevie. The cross had cut into a third of the width of the rope, while Stevie's progress was barely noticeable. They heard movement outside the mausoleum door. They stopped struggling just as the door swung open. Professor Greaves stood framed in the doorway. A giant harvest moon hung over his shoulder, the light staining half his face jack-o'-lantern orange, the other half in deep shadow. I see you're finally awake, Greaves said. It's nearly midnight, and you don't have to be awake, but your screams will make this so much more enjoyable. He stepped inside, not noticing the frayed ropes. He carried a whetstone in one hand and the ripper's knife in the other. He stood at their feet and slowly stroked the knife against the whetstone. When he finished, he put the knife and the stone on an ornate podium that had likely once contained a sculpture of some sort. He dragged the podium between the boys. He then checked his watch, which was a $50,000 Rolex. Almost time. Which one of you little shits will I do first? His eyes darted between the two boys. They settled on Rory. You seem to have the strongest will. I'll cut Stevie first so you can hear his screams. I'll draw it out. Make it exquisitely painful. He'll be a bloody mess when I'm done, and you will be broken. The boys had been in tough situations before, and they had survived. But this one seemed bleak. They locked eyes, saw each other's fear, but they also saw hope. They knew their chances were slim, but hope is a powerful force. I forgot my smock, Greaves said. I don't want to ruin this tux with your gore. While I retrieve it from my car, I want you to think about how it will feel when I slice you open. Greaves stepped out into the night. 
The boys vigorously set about trying to cut through the ropes. Stephen could feel his rope loosening as he yanked his foot back and forth. The rope cut into his ankle, making it raw. Rory was making good progress. His wrist was an angry red, but the rope looked to be cut about halfway through. If one of them could get loose and reach the knife that sat on the podium between them, they could use it to cut them free. They heard footsteps. Stevie stopped, his heart racing. Rory kept at it, pressing his luck. His eyes squinted and determined. He stopped a breath before Greaves stepped back into the mausoleum. Greaves now wore the smock, which was basically a white lab coat. He smiled. It was grotesque, ghoulish. He ran his tongue along the top row of his pointy teeth. I am going to savor this. He looked at his watch. Midnight. Time to begin. He stepped between the sarcophagi, his back to Rory. He took the knife from the podium and leaned over Stevie. He used the knife to cut his shirt from neck to him. He pulled back the halves, exposing Stevie's chest and stomach. He used the tip of his long finger to trace a line on Stevie's chest. First, I'll do a little cutting here, just deep enough to cause pain and a lot of superficial bleeding. Then, I'll move to your arms and legs, making tiny slices, focusing on the nerve clusters. You will experience dreadful pain. Then, I'll cut the bottoms of your feet in between your toes. I'm going to ruin you. Stevie's heart pounded. His mouth was dry. Everything was in hyperfocus due to the adrenaline shooting through his body. He could see out the corner of his eye that Rory was quietly, deliberately trying to cut through the rest of the rope. He needed to slow things down, give Rory time. Why are you doing this? Greaves snorted through the hole that used to be his nose. It was hollow, raspy, because you helped that wretched old woman when she fell. She should be dead now. You meddled in the natural order of things by helping her live. From the corner of his eye, Stevie saw Rory nod, indicating that he was close to cutting through the rope. He needed to keep Greaves talking. What you're doing is wrong, Stevie said. Greaves' eyes narrowed, the scars deepening. I don't care about right and wrong. There's only one law, and that is do what thou wilt. Stevie knew that was a direct quote from Aleister Crowley, one of the evilest men to have ever lived. He called himself the beast and conjured demons. Stevie now understood that Professor Grieve believed that he was a god, and thinking such, felt he could do anything he wanted, no matter how vile, and not suffer any consequences. You won't get away with this, Stevie said. Grieve leaned close, his ruined face inches from Stevie's. Watch me, he rasped. He raised the knife so that Stevie could see it. Here comes the first cut. He brought the knife down onto Stevie's chest. The blade penetrated his skin. Blood welled up through the cut and began to drizzle down his side. 
Stevie's heart pounded. His eyes shot wide, but he did not cry out. Instead, he realized that because Grieve was bent so close, he had room for one desperate move. With all the strength he could muster, Stevie rammed his forehead into Grieve's face. Grieve grunted and stumbled back, dropping the knife onto Stevie's stomach. Rory gave a shout and yanked his hand with all his might in an attempt to sever the rope. Instead, the marble cross broke free from the sarcophagus. The rope was still knotted to it, and he was able to swing it over his body, using it as a makeshift flail. The cross smacked against the side of Greaves' face, causing him to curse aloud. Stevie yanked his foot hard, once, twice, a third time. His ankle ached. He could feel he was close to breaking free. He yanked one more time, giving it everything he had. The rope snapped. He used his now free foot to kick at the cross to which his right foot was tied, breaking it free from the sarcophagus. Grieve was dazed. Blood seeped from a gash on the left side of his head. He snatched for the knife that was still somehow lying on Stevie's stomach. Rory, still tied to the sarcophagus, but with one hand free, slung the cross. This time, it smacked Grieve on the neck. Damn it, boy! Grieve lunged at Rory, grabbed him by the throat. Stevie's feet were now free. He rolled over, the knife falling beside him onto the sarcophagus, and kicked Grieve in the back. Grieve grunted but kept choking Rory, whose face was now turning blue. Rory attempted to flail the cross again, but he was too weak. Stevie kicked again to no avail. He realized he was able to scoot up into a sitting position, which would give him enough slack in the ropes that he could grab the knife. He snatched it and began slicing the ropes at his wrists. Grieve glanced back at Stevie. He let go of Rory and snatched at the knife. Stevie slashed Grieve's hand, causing him to hiss in anger. Rory gulped air, mustered up all his strength, and again slung the cross at Grieve. It smacked into the back of his head with a meaty thud. Grieve roared and instinctively turned to ward off another blow. Stevie saw his chance and finished cutting through the ropes at his wrists. He kept the knife in his left hand, but grabbed the cross that he'd broken off the sarcophagus in his right. He brought it up and smashed it three times against Greaves' head. The man went limp and slumped to the ground. Stevie used the knife to cut Rory free. They used the rope to tie Greaves' hands and feet. Then they exited the mausoleum and slammed the door shut. They saw Greaves' SUV parked 30 yards away in the lane that snaked through the cemetery. They ran over and found the doors were unlocked. The keys were gone, probably in Greaves' pockets, but they were not going to go back and check. They were surprised to see that Greaves had loaded their bikes in the back. Why do you think he did that for? Rory asked. After he killed us, he probably would have disposed of the bikes with their bodies, Stevie said. He done took our cell phones, Rory said. Look like we done be riding back to the park to get Mr. Ivan. They drug their bikes out of the SUV and pedaled as if the devil himself were after them. It was 1 a.m. when they rode past the gaudy neon sign that sat at the entrance of the trailer park. They pulled to a stop at the teal-colored block building that served as the park office, hoping that Ivan would be there having a coffee in between his rounds. 
They rushed in, eyes wild, yelling for him. Ivan was sitting behind the counter. He shot up, looking over their shoulders for any danger that may be following them. If these boys were looking for him, that meant there was trouble. Nobody knew much about Ivan. He looked a fit fifty, but was probably a bit older. He wore his graying hair in a military high and tight and carried himself as if he had spent a lifetime as a soldier. He spoke with only the slightest hint of a Russian accent. Calm down, calm down, he said. Take a deep breath. Tell me, what's going on? The boys laid it all out for him. Ivan snatched his phone and called Sheriff Mosley, who was one of the few townsfolk who knew that Nevermore Hollows had a dark, paranormal underbelly. Ivan relayed to Mosley what the boys had told him. They say Grieve took them to Crumley Cemetery. He had them in one of the bigger mausoleums. Yes, we'll meet you there. Ivan and the boys ran out the back and got into the golf cart that belonged to the park. It was painted in fading pink with a stained white canopy. Ivan had modified the cart by removing its battery-powered engine and replacing it with one that ran on gas. The cart was fast. Hang on, he said and punched it. Stevie sat beside him in the front seat. Rory sat on the backward-facing seat behind them. The boys held on as they raced down the dark road back to Crumley Cemetery. They shot past the wrought iron gate and swerved down the narrow lane that snaked through the grounds. It be dat one over there, Rory said. The mausoleum sat under a giant oak with long, twisty branches. It was covered in Spanish moss that hung down like the flayed skin of the damned. Greaves' SUV is gone, Stevie said. It was parked over there. They heard a car and turned to see that Mosley had pulled into the cemetery. He was alone, most likely because he wanted to keep the strange occurrences in the town quiet. He parked behind the golf cart. He stepped out of the car and put on his cowboy hat. He pulled his weapon and held it down to his side. He noticed that Ivan had his shotgun with him, the one he kept in the golf cart. They exchanged a glance and started making their way toward the mausoleum. The door was open, and Ivan shone in a light. It was empty, except for the remnants of rope. He's gone, Mosley said. I bet he didn't go back to the park. He used his radio to send two deputies to Greaves' trailer, just in case. The cemetery was dark. The night was cool but not cold because it never really got very cold in Nevermore Hollows. They stood next to the golf cart. The boys gave more details and Ivan attended to Stevie's wound, which was superficial and would likely not even leave a scar. When they were finished, Mosley said, This town never ceases to amaze me. It seems a new horror shows up every month. Mosley's radio crackled, and the deputies he'd sent to Trailer 33 reported that Grieve was not to be found. Mosley and Ivan exchanged a worried look. They had grown to love these boys, almost as their own, and they knew the boys looked up to them as father figures. They couldn't stop them from seeking adventure, 
but they had been teaching them self-defense, and tonight it had saved their lives. Ivan spent the most time with them, had seen them handle themselves better than many grown men he'd known. He was proud that the majority of their misadventures were caused by their goodness and their desire to help others. He knew that if more people could see their courage and goodness, the world would be a much better place. He put a comforting hand on each of their shoulders, looked them in the eyes because they deserved respect, and said, Boys, I'm proud of you.